Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. The distinctions in one mitzvah and the next are all external differences. This is a biblical mitzvah, and this is a rabbinic, this is a Jewish custom. This is a minor mitzvah, and this is a major mitzvah. The Torah itself makes these distinctions, major, minor, but that's all technical external differences. The underlying theme behind all the mitzvah, there is, really is no difference. This is the will of Hashem. Every mitzvah connects you with God, and every sin disconnects you from God. And either you're connected or you're disconnected. There's no, there's no, it's not a 99% connected. It's not a question of percentages there. Either I'm connected or I'm disconnected. When it comes to will, you can't make these distinctions. So that's the difference between intellect and will. When if, if there's a concept, a difficult concept, you can say, honestly, I understand 50% of the concept. I understand 75% of the concept. You, know, you can break it down into percentage-wise. I understand most of it. I don't understand it fully. When it comes to will, there's no such thing. Either I did what you, what you want from me, or I didn't do. But I, I only, it was only a minor detail. I was off by a minor detail. I asked you to go south, and instead you went, you went north. But I did 99% of everything else that you asked me to do. No, you didn't do what I asked you to do. That's not what I wanted you to do. It's very nice that you did 99.9%. But the bottom line is, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. When it comes to will, there's no, there's no percentages. Either you did what I wanted you, or you didn't do what I wanted. So God wants us to do a certain thing. And he, he revealed it, whether in, through, through the biblical, or whether rabbinic, or Jewish custom, doesn't matter. This is the will of Hashem. Once I know this, the will of Hashem, you can't say, but 99.9% I'm doing what you want me to, to do. 1% I'm not doing, 0.1%. Either you're connected or you're not connected. Either you did what I want, or you didn't do what I want. You, it doesn't matter. The tiniest, the tiniest detail is just as significant as, as, as the most major detail. So the underlying thing behind all the mitzvot is this is the will of Hashem. When you do a mitzvah, you're fulfilling God's will and you're connected. And when you don't, even the most minor, minor infraction, you're not doing the will of Hashem and you're disconnected. So it's the equivalent of idolatry. So for us to make distinctions between, oh, this is a major mitzvah, this is a minor mitzvah, this is a major sin, this is a minor sin, a minor sin insignificant, that, that comes from a spirit of folly. That's insanity, pure insanity. There is no distinction. And if a Jew is ready to give up his life, if a Jew is so committed to God, our connection to Hashem is so meaningful to us that we're ready to make every one of us, the simplest Jew, is ready to make the ultimate sacrifice, ready to give up his life rather than be disconnected from God even for a split second, even for a moment, even only externally. How much more so we're we ready to give up our life for the most minor infraction, for the most minor detail, the most minor sin, any of the 365 prohibitions, even the rabbinic prohibitions, even the Jewish custom. And the, any distinction that we do make is pure insanity. And that's why the Torah says that to be Jewish is something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew. And it's natural. And it's instinctive. It's our essence. It's innate. It's inherent. All mitzvah, not only the mitzvah of idolatry or the mitzvah of believing in God, but just like we're ready to sacrifice our life rather, rather than commit idolatry, so too... 
this should be the motivation for us to do all of the mitzvot. So to lead a total Jewish life, to live up to every letter and every word and every paragraph in the Code of Jewish Law, this is something, this is something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew. The Torah doesn't ask of us the impossible. The Torah demands from us something that's realistic. Torah and mitzvot is a realistic program for real people in the here and now, for each and every one of us. God is not asking us to give up our life. He's really asking us to give up a momentary pleasure, a, um, an illusionary pleasure, that we think we want to do this, we think we want to transgress, we think we don't want to do the right thing. But deep down inside, of course we want to do the right thing. Deep down inside we want to connect. And deep down inside we would rather give up our life than be disconnected from God. So it's a simple thing. It's a self-evident thing. It's an obvious thing. It's a natural thing for us. For each and every Jew is the most natural thing in the world. For each and every one of us. To keep all 613 minutes. To do all 248 positive commandments. And to avoid, God forbid, transgressing or violating any of the 365 And including all the rabbinic mitzvahs thousands of mitzvot and details and Jewish customs. A full-fledged, vibrant, active, dynamic Jewish life. This is something that's near to each and every Jew. Moshe is speaking across all the spans of generations. Speaking to us today, at the end of the year 2007. He says, wherever you live, whoever you are, it's the most natural thing in the world for you to be Jewish, to lead a fully active vibrant Jewish life in thought, speech, and action. So now that we understand this very clearly, that the distinctions that we make between major and minor, biblical, rabbinic, that alone is insanity. Because really there is no difference between one and the other. Every single mitzvah connects us with God and every single sin disconnects us from God. So that leads us to a, a question. That is, we find in the Torah that there is a distinction between mitzvah. And we find that there's a major distinction between idolatry and all other mitzvot. In that, a Jew has to transgress all 613 mitzvot just in order to sustain life. With the exception, three exceptions. Idolatry, or adultery, and murder. Or and any immoral, uh, sexual immoral behavior that's biblically prohibited, that comes along with a death sentence, and murder. These three things are the only exceptions. So we see that the Torah does make a distinction between idolatry and all other sins. Here we just finished learning that there is no difference between idolatry and all other sins. Every sin is really a form of idolatry and is even worse than, idolatry, than the idol itself. It's a worse form of idolatry. The fact that we can rebel against God. We don't even acknowledge. Not only don't we acknowledge that there is no other reality but God. And we sense ourselves. And we follow our wishes, our own dictates. But we don't even acknowledge that God is the only power. And we, we violate God's will. So if we're ready to give up our life idolatry, then rather than commit idolatry, we should, be, we should be ready to give up our life rather than sin. Any sin. So why is it that the Torah makes distinctions? You only have to give up your life, only in the case of idolatry. Versus all other sins, a person has to sustain his life. You should rather commit the sin and, and sustain your life. So we see that the Torah does make distinctions. 
How do we explain it? If every sin is idolatry, why do we find this distinction? That's the question he's going to address now. True, we find a principle that saving a life overrides other prohibitions, though not the prohibition of idolatry. So too, the law sometimes calls for one to commit a transgression rather than be killed. Whereas with idolatry, incest, and murder, the law requires that he submit to death rather than commit any of the three. This would seem to indicate that the Torah itself distinguishes between idolatry and most other commandments. While the Alter Rebbe previously stated that the adulteress who makes such a distinction has been blinded by a spirit of folly, for in reality, every sin tears one away from God in the same way as idolatry. In the following paragraph, the Alter Rebbe states that there is no contradiction here. The requirement or non-requirement to sacrifice one's life for a prohibition does not reflect its intrinsic worth. This fact that saving a life overrides other prohibitions is because, as the sages explain, the Torah declares, Desecrate one Shabbat for his sake, so that he may live to observe other Shabbatot. When the medical treatment of a patient involves an activity normally forbidden on Shabbat, the Torah requires that we desecrate the Shabbat to cure him, so that he may live to observe Shabbat in the future. Thus the precept of Shabbat has not been waived in the face of an external consideration. It is in the interests of the Shabbat itself, that is, the patient's future observance of Shabbat, that we desecrate this one Shabbat. The Torah itself gives the reason. It's not because Shabbos is lighter than Avedazara than idolatry. Shabbos is any less significant. No. It's in order to keep Shabbos. The rationale is, let him violate one Shabbos, so he'll be able to live and he'll be able to fulfill many, many Shabbos. So in a way, it's not the desecration of Shabbos, you're fulfilling the mitzvah of Shabbos. It's enabling you to fulfill the mitzvah. Shabbos itself tells you that in order to keep on fulfilling Shabbos, you should rather desecrate this one time, and this will enable you to fulfill Shabbos. So it's not because Shabbos is any less significant, and therefore the Torah says, you don't have to give up your life for Shabbos. You only have to give up your life for, for um, idolatry. No. Shabbos is very strict. Shabbos is just as significant and is extremely significant. But the Torah says that we should rather give up one Shabbos in order to fulfill many, many Shabbos. Okay, that is not... And it is not because of the relative leniency of the Shabbat or gravity of the sins, such as idolatry, that one is waived while the other is not. This contention is supported by the following fact. Violation of the Shabbat is a grave offense and comparable to idolatry with regard to the law of Shechita by anyone who habitually violates a particular precept as codified in Yoredea, section 2. There, the Shulchan Aruch states that one who regularly desecrates the Shabbat is unfit for Shechita as though he habitually practiced idolatry. A habitual sexual offender, on the other hand, does not have the same law applied to him as a habitual idolater, indicating that the violation of Shabbat is graver than sexual offenses. Yet the consideration of life overrides Shabbat, but not the sexual prohibitions. Thus, it cannot be argued that the requirement to sacrifice oneself for the sexual prohibitions is due to their gravity, for we see that the desecration of Shabbat is even graver than them with regard to Shechita. Hence, we must conclude that the laws governing self-sacrifice are no measure of the relative gravity of the mitzvot, but they are simply a matter of scriptural decree. So his proof is 
that we find that Shabbos is, is as strict as idolatry. If a sheikhit, a uh, Jewish slaughterer, slaughters the animal to make it kosher, but he fulfills all of the mitzvot, except he desecrates Shabbos in public. His shechita is rendered worthless. Because not keeping Shabbos, desecrating Shabbos is the equivalent as, as, uh, as idolatry. That's how severe Shabbos is. A person who publicly desecrates Shabbos, it's the equivalent of, of idolatry. Because you're denying that God created heaven and earth. Shabbos is an affirmation that you believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth. Every Jew is a witness. It's called to testify. It's called to the witness stand to testify. By keeping Shabbos, you testify that God is the creator of heaven and earth. By not keeping Shabbos in public, then you're publicly denying that God is the creator of heaven and earth. That's the equivalent of idolatry. So such a person, if he slaughters the animal, it's as if it's worthless. It's not a kosher animal. But what if a person fulfills all 613 mitzvahs, but he has a weakness? He committed a sexual immorality and he does it constantly. That doesn't render his shechita, doesn't render his shechita um, not kosher. Shechita is kosher. Because a person who accepts the Torah, but he has a weakness, he's a human being, and he has a weakness, he has a sexual weakness, that doesn't render his shechita not kosher. I mean, he's a lousy bum, but his shechita, his shechita is a kosher shechita. Regarding the laws of Shechita, we see that which is stricter, Shabbos or the laws of, of, of sexual immorality? Shabbos is strict. And yet, what does the Torah say? You have to give up your life rather than commit sexual immorality, even under the coercion of death. But when it comes to Shabbos, you have to desecrate the Shabbos. So you see, it has nothing to do with strictness or not strictness. The question is, just like we say, that a person should rather desecrate one Shabbos in order to keep many Shabbos, and why don't we say the same in regards to sexual morality? Let it, under the force of a gun, let him commit the sexual immoral act in order that he should be able to live and he should be able to fulfill this mitzvah over, the, over his entire lifetime and be able to refrain from acting sexually immoral. You can make the same calculation. Why don't we do that? And that he continues, Ella... But there's, there's a simply a matter of scriptural decree. It's a, it's a scriptural decree. We can't understand it. We don't know why the Torah says that, in this case, we use that rationale, that this is the way to fulfill Shabbos. By desecrating Shabbos, you're actually fulfilling Shabbos because you're enabling the person to be able to fulfill many, many more Shabbos. It's not a question of being lenient. The Torah gives a rationale that the way to fulfill Shabbos, by desecrating Shabbos, you're fulfilling Shabbos. You're enabling the person to be able to keep many, many Shabbos. So why don't you use that same rationale with, with adultery? That rather a person, or, or with idolatry. He said idolatry is the equivalent of Shabbos. By denying Shabbos, by desecrating Shabbos, you're denying that God is the creator of heaven and earth. And yet the Torah says, desecrate the Shabbos. And that's not a desecration, it's a fulfillment of Shabbos. Because you're enabling the person to be able to fulfill many, many Shabbos. And why don't you say the same, use the same rationale for idolatry and adultery? Let the person bow down to the idolist one time. He'll be able to live for, for, for many, many more years. And he'll be able to live a Jewish life and, and deny, not worship idols, idolatry, and not, not commit idolatry, and not commit adultery for the rest of his life. 
So this is Xerus HaKos. Xerus HaKos means it's something we don't understand. Why God said this? In this case, yes. In this case, not. It's one of those mysteries, those things that uh, transcend it's, uh, transcends the rational mind. Our mind is way too limited. And God says that in this case you have to give up your life. In the other case, not. But it's one of those things we don't understand. And it has nothing to do with the... Because the mitzvah is, is, is important and not important. Because as we just learned at great length, there is no difference between one mitzvah and the next. But nevertheless, after we sin, there are distinctions that we do make between one sin and the next. This that we discuss that there is no difference between one sin and the next. This is only before, this is before we sin because the underlying uh, reason behind all the mitzvot is that this is the will of Hashem. When it comes to fulfilling the will of God, it doesn't matter, major, minor. When it comes to will, there's no percentages. I fulfilled 99.9% of the will. Either it's 100% or it's nothing. When it comes to reasoning, to understanding, you could understand 99%, of it, 50%. There are percentages. When it comes to will, either you did what, you, what Hashem wanted or you didn't do. Either you did what I asked or you didn't do what I asked. Period. But nevertheless, after the sin, there are distinctions between sins, but then between mitzvah. Whether it's a major or a minor, there are distinctions, there are differences. Whether we've committed a major sin, which the Torah calls major, a sin that receives a death sentence or a death penalty that means that the sin is a major sin, a sin that touched our soul very, very deeply. Or, if it's, the Torah itself says it's a minor sin, then the impact that it has is, is, not, is, is not as severe. So after the fact, there are distinctions in regard to the, to the teshuvah. Regards to the damage that we've caused. Because every sin, in addition to the, the most important part of it, which is, did I do the will of God or didn't I do the will of God? Am I connected or am I disconnected? Which in that regard, there is no distinction between one and the next, major or minor. But in addition, there's also damage. Every sin that we do, we do damage. It creates a scar in our soul and also in the heavenly worlds, in the worlds above. We are in the command and control center of the whole universe. We are in the driver's seat. Everything that we do affects and impacts the world. We change the world, for better or for worse. Every time we do a mitzvah, we elevate our soul and we elevate the world around us, and we elevate all of the spiritual realms. And every time, God forbid, we do the wrong thing, it creates a scar. It leaves an impact. There are two aspects to teshuvah. When a person sins, he wants to reconnect with God. One is, they want to reconnect with God. You want to once again fulfill, become an expression of God, become an implement, a vehicle. You want to become connected by expressing and living God's will. You want to become like the body the body to God's will, just like the body in relationship to the soul. But then there's another aspect to Teshuvah. And that is, I have to mend, I have to clean up the damage that I've done. And we see this reflected in Halacha, these two aspects of Teshuvah. 
This woman says, I agree to be married to you. person proposes. He gives her a ring. He says, you are married to me. She says, on one condition, that you are a complete tzaddik. I'm only going to marry you if you're a tzaddik. She has, to, she has a right to make any condition she wants. But we know that he's, 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 he's a Russia. He's wicked. He's evil. Nevertheless, you still need a divorce. Why? Because maybe, maybe perhaps he had a thought of teshuva. He had a thought. He regretted his life. He regretted his behavior. And he had a sincere thought of doing teshuva. A regret for his behavior. And he wants to reconnect with God. And all it takes to do teshuva in one split second, halachically, in one split second, you can turn your whole life around. From one extreme to the other. Here you were a bum, a scoundrel, a low life. In one split second, you can have a change of heart. How far is east from west? Right? You don't have to go far. You just have to turn around. You can turn your whole life around. In one split second, you can turn your whole life around. From one extreme to the other. A change of heart. You want to connect with God. You're sorry for, for your behavior. You're sorry for the way you lived your life. You're sorry for harming this relationship. You have such a wonderful relationship. And, you, and why would you do anything to destroy this relationship? So one split second, you're sorry how you lived your life. And you, you have, in, in your heart, you have a change of heart. And now you want to connect with God. And you reveal that love, that innate love that you always had for God. And you turned your life around. Now we don't know what's going on in a person's heart. We can never know if the person did the shuva. But out of doubt that perhaps he did Shuvah, if, if he wants to remarry, she wants to remarry, he has to give her a divorce. A, legal, a halachic divorce. Because maybe he fulfilled the condition of the marriage. And therefore maybe the marriage is a valid marriage. And if the marriage is a valid marriage, he need a divorce. We, we can never be sure because we don't know what's going on in a person's heart. But if in fact the person has a change of heart in that split second, halacha says... That the marriage, he fulfilled the condition, and she accepted, she consented. The marriage is a good marriage, halachically, and he needs a divorce. And he's 100% married. Now, wait a minute. There are certain sins that it's not enough just to have a change of heart. For example, if a person stole $100, yes, when you violate, when you sin towards your fellow man, you've also sinned towards God. You violated a biblical prohibition. Thou shalt not steal. And you have to do teshuvah. You have to reconnect with God. But that's not enough. You also have to go and pay the person $100. On Yom Kippur, we know that Yom Kippur could forgive you on every single sin except the sins, the man and man. You have to obtain forgiveness. If you hurt someone, you insult someone, you can pray and cry from today till tomorrow. 24 hours of Yom Kippur is not going to help you. You have to turn to the person and genuinely ask him for forgiveness and the person has to forgive you. Otherwise, your sin is still there. So there's damage that was done. So how can the Talmud say that the, that the woman needs a divorce and the Talmud doesn't distinguish what kind of sin it is. It doesn't say, well, if it's only sins between man and man, man and God. It says any sin. He's a rasha, he's a sinner. Not only between man and God, between man and man. So what does it help me that maybe he did the shuva in that split second? In his heart. And therefore, had he done tshuva, he's definitely married. It's definitely a valid marriage. And she would need a divorce if she wants to remarry. Why? How about the damage? He has to repay. And the answer is there's two aspects to, to, to tshuva. There's one aspect of tshuva. Are you a wicked person or aren't you a wicked person? 
A person who just follows his instincts and follows his urges and does whatever he pleases and God has no say in his life. And even though the Torah says clearly, thou shalt not steal. It means nothing to him. He goes ahead and does as he pleases. Then he's a rush. The moment he has a change of heart and he turns from east to west and he turns around and he says, Hashem, I'm yours, I'm connected. Whatever you want, I become an organ to you. I become an extension of you, an expression of you. Whatever you want, every organ in my body, every living in my body will just, is just here to express your will and your wish. The moment you have that change of heart, you're no longer a rush. You're connected again. Totally connected. So he's not, no longer a rush. Therefore, her condition, her condition was fulfilled. She's marrying a tzaddik. And therefore the marriage is, is 100% valid. And if she wants to remarry, she needs a divorce. Then there's another aspect. A technical aspect. Now there are damages. Yes, you're a tzaddik. Now you're pure and innocent and righteous and good and connected. But how about all the damage that you've done? You have to mop up. You have to sweep up all the damage that you've done. Now you have to go back and pay back the, the person his hundred dollars. You insulted someone. You have to obtain his forgiveness. So the distinction between one mitzvah and the next, after a person uh, violates and transgresses, when the Torah says there's a difference between a major transgression and a minor transgression, yes, because that's the damage that you've done. Every sin has an impact on this world. And of course, a major sin will have a much deeper impact, will leave a much deeper scar. And a minor sin will leave, will leave a minor impact. Then the, impact, then the, 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 the damages are not, are not so severe. So it's easy, easy to, uh, to clean up. And we find these distinctions in the Torah. When it comes to Teshuvah, it says if a person has violated the positive mitzvah of a person, it was a sin of omission, you did not fulfill a positive commandment, the moment you do Teshuvah, your sins are forgiven. The moment you do Teshuvah, on the spot, your sins are forgiven. What if you violated a sin of commission? actually went ahead and did something wrong then tshuva alone is not enough in addition to tshuva you need the Yom Kippur tshuva together with Yom Kippur has the power to cleanse you of that scar to wipe away that scar to wipe away that impression that negative impression negative energy what if you violated a severe prohibition? A prohibition that, that's accompanied by a death sentence. The Torah says your soul will be cut off. Or, you, or had there been witnesses, you would have received a death sentence. Capital punishment. Then, Teshuvah is not enough. Yom Kippur is not enough. You also need pain and suffering. The combination of Teshuvah and Yom Kippur and pain and suffering together they wipe away your sin. And what if the sin is one of Chilul Hashem, you desecrated God's name. Not only have you sinned, but you actually caused God's name to be desecrated. Then, Teshuvah is not enough. Yom Kippur is not enough. Pain and suffering is not enough. The only, in addition to those three, you also need death. And death is the ultimate atonement. In Judaism, death is part of the atonement of the soul. 
when the ego dies and the ego comes to an abrupt halt, an abrupt end, that's part of the purification of the soul. And the soul is cleansed and elevated through that process. So when the person dies, and then the person's name is forgotten, and his desecration is forgotten, and his, then any, all that negative energy that he brought into this world, that profound negative energy, that profound scar, that he, that he uh, scarred his soul, and the profound scar in the universe, and the upper realms, and the higher spiritual realms, and the divine realms, is finally wiped away and cleansed away. So in Judaism, pain and suffering is viewed, is viewed as part of our spiritual, spiritual cleansing. You know, unfortunately, tragically, the pain and suffering at the end of a person's life, this is all part of the healing of the soul, it's part of the cleansing that the person has, has to go through, the soul has to go through in order to, to wipe away any scar, any, any um, and this prepares the soul to enter into the, into, the, into the next stage, into the next level. And therefore, in Judaism, we're prohibited. Suicide is absolutely prohibited. We don't take a, our own life. No matter how much a person is suffering, we don't take life. We're not God. We don't play God. We know that there are things happening that are unfathomable to us. There are things happening in a different dimension. If a person has to go through pain and suffering, this is part of the cleansing process. Only God decides. We don't play God. You know, some people just die a painless death. They just, like, go to sleep. And, uh, and, and uh, there are others in all different variations. But in Judaism, we don't play God. Because whatever happens, we know that it's for a reason. Nothing just happens. And even in, on levels and dimensions that we cannot even fathom. But this is a cleansing of the soul. This is part of the process of the soul in order for the soul to be able to go to the next level. So we do find distinctions between one sin and the next. The Torah itself makes distinctions. Because it depends on the damage and the scar level of the scar, how deep the scar is. So this has nothing to do with the theme that we're discussing till now. We are discussing till now the underlying theme behind all the mitzvot is, are you connected or are you disconnected? And in that there is no distinction between one mitzvah and the next, major, minor. And that sense to shuva can mean one instant, one split second you can turn your whole life around. And the person is considered married. He fulfilled the condition. Even though he hasn't returned yet the hundred dollars. He has a lot of mending to do and he has a lot of uh, cleaning up to do. And it's regarding the mending and the cleaning up and that there are distinctions. After he sinned, then there are distinctions. How deep was the scar? How much damage did you do? How much do you have to clean up? The altar Rebbe now goes on to say that if a difference is indeed to be drawn between the various sins, it is only with regard to their effect after they have taken place. After the sinful act, however, if the sin is of the type that carries neither the penalty of karet, spiritual extinction of the soul, or death at the hands of heaven, in which case the divine soul does not completely perish and is not entirely cut off from its source in the living God, except that through this sin its attachment to its source and its connection with it has been weakened somewhat in the case of such a sin. The altar Rebbe concludes after a parenthetical note, the animal soul and the body can rise out of the kelipa and unite with the holiness of the divine soul. 
the difference between, on the one hand, the sins carrying the penalty of karet, or death, at the hands of heaven, and other sins, is explained elsewhere as follows. The connection of the divine soul with its godly source is comparable to a rope woven of 613 strands, each strand representing one of the commandments. Every sin severs a corresponding strand. When one strand is broken, the entire rope is weakened, but not severed entirely. The penalties of karet, or death, at the hands of heaven, however, cut the rope entirely, so to speak. So the Torah says, Yaakov Hevel Nachalasa. Yaakov is a portion of God, but Hevel also means a rope. It's a rope that's made up of 613 threads. Every time you do a mitzvah, you strengthen that connection. It's like a rope that connects us with God. A rope that's thrown from heaven down to us, like from the roof down to the ground level. Every time we do a mitzvah, we tug at the rope and we evoke a response in heaven. You do something practical, physical. You light a candle, you put on tefillin, and it evokes something in heaven on the deepest level of our soul. That, that's the mystery, the magic, the mystery of, of a mitzvah. It's divine. Something really happens when we do a mitzvah. It's not a ritual, a custom. It's an experience for the soul, and it affects on the deepest level. Vice versa, every time we do a sin, sin of commission or mission, we cut off a strength. If it's one mitzvah, minor mitzvah, it's like cutting off one little thread. The rope is still intact. When the Torah says kares, kares means you're cut off. You cut off, the entire connection is cut off. And that's why we find those mitzvot where the Torah says the penalty is kares, Jews are very careful. Even those who are not connected. For example, it comes to Yom Kippur. It's amazing. A Jew never steps foot into shul all year round. Comes to Yom Kippur, he walks into shul. If you think about it, it's totally illogical, irrational. If being Jewish meant nothing to me yesterday, it means nothing to me tomorrow. All of a one day a year, suddenly I'm a Jew, I have to be in shul, I have to be in synagogue, I have to connect. It's not logical, it's not rational. But since the Torah says, whoever eats in Yom Kippur, your soul is cut off from your people, when it touches us so deeply, we just, we just have to connect. And the same thing is with a Seder, Pesach. Passover also, the Torah says, whoever doesn't keep Pesach, who eats chametz and Pesach, your soul will be cut off. So it touches the Jew so deeply, therefore you have to connect. And the same thing is with circumcision, the bris, any mitzvah with the Torah says, that its karis has such a deep impact on us, and it touches us so deeply, it, touches, it affects our connection to God on such a deep level that we can't be disconnected. A Jew can't be disconnected from God. And we can't delude ourselves. Well, if I won't keep Yom Kippur, I'm still a Jew. If I won't celebrate Pesach, I'm still a Jew. If I won't make a bris, I'm still a Jew. You can't, you can't delude yourself. You know that this affects the very core of your connection with Hashem. Okay, now he's going to explain in the note that the, each sin creates a certain blemish. And the, the punishment of a sin is not for the sake of punishment. The punishment is actually a, a healing for the soul. It wipes away the blemish, it wipes away the scar, it's a healing of the soul. And he says, based on the level of the blemish, so too is the level of the punishment necessary in order to heal the soul and to remove, or remove the blemish. Okay? In the following note, the Altar Rebbe states that the varying degrees of severity in the punishments imposed for various sins correspond to the blemish caused by each sin. The purpose of punishment is not the punishment per se, but purification of the soul from the blemish which the sin brought about. Thus, the greater the blemish, the more severe the punishment. Note. 
corresponding to the extent and specific nature of the blemish caused by the sin in the soul and in its source in the supernal worlds, are the various purifying processes and punishments in purgatory or in this world, i.e. the suffering of the soul in purgatory, or one suffering in this world, whose purpose is to purify the soul. For each transgression and sin, it's appropriate punishment, for the purpose of cleansing and removing the stain and the blemish caused by that specific sin. Similarly, the blemish caused by the sins carrying the penalty of death at the hands of heaven, or karet, varies from one sin to another. End of note. To return to our original point, after the sinful act, in the case of those sins which do not carry the punishment of karet, or death, at the hands of heaven, the sinner's animal soul, which animates the body and is clothed in it, as well as his body itself, return and rise from the Sitra Ahra and Kalipa, whereto they descended when the sin was committed, and they draw closer to the holiness of the divine soul that pervades them. The divine soul always believes in the one God, and remains faithful to him even while the sin is being committed. For it is only the animal soul via the body that performs the sinful act. But at that time, the divine soul was in a state of veritable exile in the animal soul, which derives from the Sitra Ahra, which causes the body to sin and drags it down with itself to the lowest depths. So low, in fact, that it is even lower than the impurity of the Sitra Ahra and the Kalipa of idolatry. May God preserve us. An exile's foreign surroundings restrict him from expressing his abilities and ideas. Similarly, the divine soul, which is in exile within the animal soul when one sins, is unable to express itself in mastery of the body and in harnessing it for the service of God by reason of the foreign environment of the Kelipa. There is no greater exile than this exile of the divine soul within the animal soul that is brought on through sin. It is a plunge from a lofty roof to a deep pit. For as explained earlier, the source and root of all Jewish souls is in the divine wisdom, and God and his wisdom are one and the same. And sin plunges the soul from this lofty plane to the depths of exile within the Sitra Ahra. It is comparable to one who seizes the king's head, drags it down, and dips his face in a privy full of filth. The ultimate in humiliation, even if he does it only for a moment. For the Kelipot and Sitra Ahra are called vomit and filth, as is known. The soul can never get used to sin, any sin, the most minor sin. Even if a person is a career, career sinner <laughs> for decades, you can never get used to it. Because even when the person is sinning, the soul remains pure. The soul remains intact. The soul remains whole and wholesome and connected with Hashem. The soul believes in Hashem. The soul has an innate, inherent love to Hashem. And for the soul, sin is like um, it's like taking taking a, a hand of a child and, and putting it into fire. You know, you, you can't get used to it. The pain doesn't go away. The pain is not lessened with time. It's something very real. And. Um, you know, for the soul, it's, 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 it's a holocaust. Every time we tell, it's like a concentration camp. The, the torture is unspeakable. The humiliation is, is, is un, un, unspeakable. As he uses the analogy. It's like taking the head of the, the, head of the king and putting it in, in, in the toilet 
full of filth. The humiliation, the sting, the pain, the anguish, the agony is not lessened with time. You don't get used to it. It's not that you're older and you've stopped caring and you've become numb and you become indifferent and you stop responding. The soul can never get used to it because the soul is always young and vibrant and connected and wholesome. And every time you tell a lie and every time you do something unsavory, we do something wrong, we do something immoral, we do something that violates the code of Jewish law, the soul is just an unbearable, unbearable agony, unbearable pain, unspeakable agony and humiliation. And it doesn't matter, major sin, minor sin, any sin, any disconnect from Hashem. So therefore, were we to be in touch with our neshama, were we to feel the pain of our neshama, the fact that we numb out and we stop feeling is just a sign of how, how much in pain we are. Sometimes the neshama is in such pain that the only way to deal with it is by numbing out. It's not like you, you stop feeling because you stop caring. You care so deeply and you care so much that you simply can't, can't bear the pain. So you just numb out. It's a defensive system. It's a re- defensive response. So it doesn't mean that the neshama is dead inside of us. The neshama stops caring. The neshama stops feeling. The neshama is alive. And the neshama feels. And it feels everything. The neshama is very sensitive. And everything is registered. Just like every piece of junk food we eat <laughs> registers in our body. Our body doesn't forgive or forget. Every last bit of junk that we feed it, that we put into our bodies. The neshama is extremely sensitive. Our soul is extremely sensitive. And it senses every single thing. And it registers and it has an impact. And the neshama is in pain and is in agony. And when, the, and when we're not crying, it just shows how deeply in pain we are. We're in such pain that we have to numb out. So, on the contrary, when it's the voice that you don't hear. The voice, it's so loud that you don't even hear the cry. The cry is so loud that you don't even hear it. Not because the, you're not crying inside. When a person doesn't even care, doesn't even know that he cares, that's the deepest exile. It's one thing when you know you're in exile. You feel a restlessness. You feel uncomfortable. It bothers you. You feel guilty. Someone, actually in Hawaii, my, uh, is living this alternative lifestyle. He tells my brother, he says, uh, he says, you know, I've been living this lifestyle 40 years, but it still, it still doesn't feel right. <laughs> no, he said, come to your own weakness. But at least this is someone who's in touch with himself. But a person who's so out of touch with himself that he's just numbed out and doesn't feel anything and stops feeling guilty. The reality is, the fact is, that deep down inside, the neshama is alive, the neshama is wholesome, the neshama feels and is sensitive. And if we stop crying, it means we're crying so loud that you can't even hear it. You no longer hear it, but it's there. The shout is so loud. The pain, the anguish must be so loud. And for the soul... Every moment of existence is filled with existential angst for the soul. The soul is in tremendous pain. And that's why there's always this angst, especially amongst the Jewish people. There's this restlessness, there's this, this hunger, this seeking, this searching, this restlessness. We just can't make peace with the status quo. There's living nine to five. And if that 
trauma is not enough, we make it even worse. When we go ahead and then we sin. When we do something to disconnect from God, we, we take the soul and we plunge it to even a deeper depth. And for the soul, the only thing that can justify this experience, this pain, is only when we study Torah and we do a mitzvah. Because then, for that moment, the neshama has a reprieve. For that moment, the neshama is back home. The neshama is back in the royal palace. The neshama is connecting. And at the deepest levels, it's soothing for the neshama. It's the only thing that can soothe its ache and pain. It's the only thing that can justify all that pain. Its purpose, its mission, by fulfilling its purpose, fulfilling its mission, by connecting to God. As it says, the neshama came down into this world, and its mission is in order to do teshuva. Teshuva means to return, as King Solomon says, the spirit returns to the God who has given it. So the purpose of, a, of our neshama's descent is to, 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 is to do teshuva, to go back, to go back to reconnect with God. And that's why the Ten Commandments opens up with, I am God, your God. We're discussing here the Ten Commandments, the first two which we heard directly from God Himself, from Hashem Himself. And the opening of the Ten Commandments is, I am Hashem, I took you out of Egypt. And the commentators asked the question, and should have said, I am God, your God, who created heaven and earth. Heaven and earth is a much greater miracle than the Exodus from Egypt, as we learned in the second part of the Tanya, that the miracle of the cup of water is more profound than the miracle of the splitting of the sea. All the miracles of the splitting of the sea and the Exodus from Egypt pale in comparison to the miracle of the existence of a cup of water. So it should have said, I am God who created heaven and earth. Why does it say, I am God who took you out of Egypt? And the answer is, one of the answers given is that Egypt, Mitzrayim, comes from the Hebrew, Mitzrayim Ogvulim, limitation. That when the soul descends into this world, this is going down into Egypt. For the soul, this is a journey into exile. The soul leaves heaven, the sublime reality of heaven, and which is in touch with the sublime, with godliness, and it plunges and descends into Egypt. A narrow, confined body, ego, that confines it. And for the soul, this is tremendously traumatic creates extreme existential angst. And therefore, God gave us Torah mitzvah. That's our exodus from Egypt. How do we leave our Egypt, our personal, private Egypt? It's through Torah mitzvah. Because every time you study Torah, every time you do a mitzvah, and every time you avoid a negative prohibition, you're connecting with Hashem. So this is soothing for the soul. This is sad for the, for the soul. You're going back. So you, you can reconnect it, you're going to Shuvah, you're going back to the heavenly palace. And therefore, this is something that we need each and every day. It's not like, well, I studied Torah yesterday, I did a mitzvah yesterday. So today, it's not necessary. It's something that we need constantly. Torah and mitzvot are constant. It's a constant throughout our life. Because the neshama can never get used to. It's, it's, it's angst, it's existential angst. This, the confines of materialism, being disconnected from God, being disconnected from its source. And the only thing that can make the neshama feel whole and wholesome is when it connects with God. Because 
the only justification, the only reason for the soul to enter into this world is, is if it fulfills its mission. If it leaves its exile by studying Torah and doing a mitzvah, that's our ticket out. That's our way to leave the concentration camp. That's we reconnect. We go back home. We're back in the palace. We're back in the sublime palace. We're connecting with Hashem. We're connecting with godliness. We come alive. But to go into exile and to remain in exile and not to take the opportunity to leave exile. Hashem threw us a rope. He gave us the opportunity. Here, this is your key. This is your exit. Leave. It's in your hands. Light the candle. Give the penny to tzedakahs. Pray. Do a mitzvah. Put on the tefillin. Study Torah. This is your key. This is your exit. On a silver platter. It's all yours. But if we don't take that opportunity, then the pain is unbearable because it's a meaningless pain. Just humiliation for the sake of humiliation. Just suffering for the sake of suffering. How heartless could a person be? How heartless could we be to ourselves? Could we do this to our own souls? If we were to realize how, how, how much an anguish, how the soul is in such anguish, and suffering so much. If it's not bad enough that the soul descended into this world, that the soul, that we're born into this world, that alone for the soul is a very traumatic experience. And it's something that the soul never really gets used to. It's uncomfortable. But to take it further and to then to, to plunge it into a deeper exile, into a deeper abyss, to send it into the pit of snakes and to plunge, plunge the king's head into, into the filth. Every time we do a sin, we're dunking the king's head into the filth. Every time we tell a lie, every single time, that minor sin, major sin, makes no difference. How heartless could a person be? The pain, the humiliation is just unbearable. And the soul never gets used to it. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> do it again. <laughs> it's unbearable. So, if we were to feel the anguish of the soul, the pain of the soul, to make any distinction between a major sin and a minor sin, it's pure insanity. What difference does it make? Any sin, the most minor sin, we're taking the neshama and humiliating it and creating such anguish, unbearable anguish, and for no reason. So is it really worth that momentary pleasure? Was it really worth it? To hurt ourselves so much, so deeply, so much pain, so much anguish, was it, is it worth it? When the reverse, when you do a mitzvah, you can give the neshama so much, ple- so much pleasure. You can soothe the anguish and the pain of the neshama. You can give your neshama so much, so much pleasure. If we were in touch with our souls, we would feel this. But because sin is a crime of passion, and it's a, it's a moment of insanity, so we're not in touch with our souls. We don't feel it. We don't experience it. We numb out. But it doesn't change the reality. The fact is a fact. Whether we feel it or not, whether we know it or not, the reality is that deep down, we are so connected. And that connection is so powerful, and so profound, and so innate, that's our core and essence. That even when we're sinning, we remain connected. And it's because we're connected that that's why the sin is a sin. That's why the sin is, is hurt so, so much. If we were not connected, it wouldn't, make it, it wouldn't matter. It's like if, when a chi- your own child misbehaves or a stranger misbehaves. A stranger misbehaves, who cares? Your own child, it's, it hurts because it's your own child. 
It's because the soul is so connected. That's why when we sin, it has such an impact. If we weren't connected, it wouldn't matter. But because we're so connected, and that's why the sin has such an impact. You're so connected to Hashem, how can you do something that goes contrary, that so violently oppose your own nature? How can you so violently oppose your true nature? How can you take the head of the king and, and put it in filth? It's the head of the king. So it's only because we're dealing with the head of the king here, because we're so connected, and the connection runs so deep, that therefore it has, it creates, it's so painful. And it's so humiliating. And the damage is so damaging. And the scar is so deep. That's why you create such a scar in our own soul and also in the universe, in the heavens above. A person says, I want to live naturally. It feels so natural. It feels so good. I want to be a genuine bum. I want to be a genuine, authentic. I want to be an authentic bum. It makes me feel good. I have to live naturally. Natural? Authentic? Genuine? You're totally delusional. Were you in touch even one percentage, one percent were you in touch deep down with your soul? You would feel the anguish and the pain, how unnatural it is. How painful it is, how humiliating it is, how insulting it is. It's heartless, it's cruel to tell a person, live as you please, whatever feels natural. You're not being their best friend, you're not giving them good advice. It's a free country. Live as you please. Whatever makes you feel good. Do as you please. You are the person's worst enemy. You are inflicting such pain on that person. Such psychic pain. Such on, on the soul. How heartless could a person be? And whether you feel it or not, it doesn't change the reality. And on the contrary, if you don't feel it, that means you're in such pain that you're just numbed out. The pain is, so, is, you're screaming so loud that you can't even hear it. You're crying so, so intensely that you don't even feel the tears. That's the fact. That's the reality. Torah is not just telling us don't sin. The Torah is telling us deep down you don't want to sin. You know what you're doing when you're sinning? You're violating your nature. You're hurting yourself in the deepest way. You're causing yourself such trauma, such pain, such senseless pain. Which is the worst type of pain. Senseless pain. That your whole journey into the life, into this world, your whole journey of life, your whole descent into this world is now meaningless. Just pain, trauma for what? For a moment's indulgence. To live like the animal. We're just in Hawaii uh, and uh, in Kauai, so we went went horseback riding a beautiful trail there and uh, the guide was giving us instructions how you uh, how you have to control the horse you know this was for beginners <laughs> obviously and um, and he was saying the horses love to eat all the time <laughs> so if you want to you want to make sure the horse follows the trail if you're going to allow the horse to eat you think the nice thing if you'll be nice to the horse the horse will start grazing and fern. It loves fern, especially a Hawaiian fern. And um, he says, you think that if you're going to be nice to the horse, the horse will listen to you. So it's just the opposite. You have to show the horse who's in control. A horse wants to eat all the time. So, you have to discipline the horse. The moment the horse, the first time the horse wants to, you have to pull the rein, give it a good kick, 
and make sure the gold goes back in the child. And then the horse will respect you. And then you know it's not only for your own good, it's for the good of the horse. It's not good for the horse. Necessarily if you all the time. And it's for the good of the horse. But you have to guide the horse. So a horse needs guidance. The soul comes down, it was a very powerful lesson in life, because the soul comes down into this world, we all have a horse inside of us. We have the animal inside of us that just wants to eat all the time, wants to have fun all the time, wants to just follow any urge, any instinct, just wants to, the path of least resistance, just have fun. But the horse needs us to ride it. It needs us to control it. And then the horse has a respect for us. And it's not only for our good, because if you're going to follow the horse, you'll, you'll end up nowhere. But it's for the sake of the horse also. You're doing the horse a favor when you control the horse. So that's life. The soul comes down into this world in order to ride the horse. The horse is a very powerful energy. By riding the horse, you can get, to, you can get places you can never go by, uh, by foot. But it's only when you're in charge, when you're in control. But a person who leads a life of a horse and just follows every urge and every instinct and society tells you just do as you please and live as you please, you're not doing the horse any favor. You're surely not doing yourself any favor. So it's cruelty. It's the ultimate cruelty. You think you're being nice. Oh, I'm being loving and nice. Whatever makes you happy. Live as you please. Do as you please. Follow every urge. Follow every instinct. You're free to live as you please and do as you want. You're not doing you're not doing the person any favor. Because deep down inside, the person is in anguish. The soul is in anguish. And the horse needs to be guided. And in the struggle between the body and the soul, in the inevitable struggle, life is a struggle. There's only one way to resolve the struggle. And that is for the soul to win. For the soul to ride the horse, to be in charge. Because the reverse can never work. The soul will never surrender to the body. And that's what the point he's making here. The soul will go underground, will go in hiding. But the soul can never make peace with the body. If a person just lives like the horse and wants to eat all the time and just wants to have fun all the time and just follows every urge and every instinct and follows, just wants to be natural, horse-like, the soul can never make peace with that existence. The soul can go underground but the soul, deep down inside, will revolt, will rebel. The soul is in anguish, the soul is restless, the soul is unhappy. We are the wealthiest generation that ever lived and the most restless generation. Unhappiest generation. There are more shrinks than psychologists than any other time in human history. More misery, psychic misery, than any other time in human history. The soul can never make peace with a life of pure indulgence and just materialistic pursuit. But the reverse does work. The body couldn't make peace when the soul is riding the horse, when the soul is in charge, and the soul is the boss, and the soul is setting the rules. The horse is happy. The horse is content. And on a higher level, in the mystic, the soul could even, the animal could even, the horse could even learn to enjoy it. The body could even learn to actually enjoy it. But even on, the, on a simple level, the horse is happy. It's well fed, it's wholesome, it's safe, and it knows that, it's, that, that the rider is in charge. The human being is in charge over the, over the animal. So the soul comes down into this world. If a soul comes down into this world, and instead of the soul being in charge, following a life of Torah and mitzvot, instead we allow the body to be in charge, the anguish is unbearable. The soul can never make peace with it. 
The soul is in extreme pain, extreme, extreme anguish. And that anguish is there. There's no covering up. There's no pretending that it's not. The humiliation, the insult, every time we do a sin, the humiliation and the damage and the pain and the scar is, is incredible, indescribable. So how heartless could we be? How could we violently oppose our true nature? And just suffering, just for the sake of suffering, without, how do we justify all that suffering? For a moment's pleasure. Instead of us being in charge and in control, when we take charge and we take control, and we follow the Torah and Mitzvot, and we don't just follow, indulge, and follow, indulge every instinct and every urge, but we follow the Torah and the Mitzvot, and we lead a good life, a wholesome life, a Jewish life, a moral, ethical life, that's when we find happiness. That's when we find contentness. That's when the body is content. The body is content. It's looking for that guidance, seeking out that guidance. Yes, you have to fight with the horse. Sometimes you've got to pull the rein, give it a good zets, a good kick. But the horse, that's exactly what the horse is waiting for. That's what the horse needs. That's the purpose of the soul coming down into this world. You want to conclude? Similarly, when one seizes the divine soul, which stems from divine wisdom, the king's head, and through his sins forces it into the kelipa, a privy full of filth, he brings upon his soul the most unspeakable humiliation, even if he does so only for a moment, for afterwards the soul rises out of its exile. We thus see the differences between the various sins apply only after the sin has been committed. During the act, however, every sin tears one away from God. Since every Jew is endowed with a hidden love of God, by virtue of which he wishes to be constantly united with him, and never to be separated from him, not even for a moment, he can employ this hidden love in fulfilling all the mitzvot and in avoiding every sin, as the Alter Rebbe concludes in the following chapter. Here we continue.